This is the fourth Sunday of Epiphany, and reading the readings for the fourth Sunday in this cycle, I thought there might be three things that I'd like to preach about. What do Episcopalians mean when they use the term authority? Are there times when through our actions we need to identify with the vulnerable and fragile people by our behavior? How do we understand as people living in 2015 the whole idea of casting out demons and power over the spirit world that Jesus is said to have in the Gospels? So let me say a few things first about authority. Anglican Christians, Episcopalians, believe that we have three sources for authority in our common life. The Bible, the Holy Scriptures, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. It's also important to say uh, something often, and I forget, and that is the church is prior to the Scriptures. The church is prior to the Scriptures. It's the church's book. And so when we engage in biblical interpretation, we have to remember that or exercise the hermeneutics of what it is we're talking about in terms of what the Bible means. So we call these three things the three-legged stool. Three-legged stool is fairly firm. It's properly constructed even though it comes in different shapes and colors and sizes. And so it's a good uh, metaphor, I think, for the church. But here's the thing. Authority is derived. Authority involves consensus. Authority is relativized by the circumstances in the culture. And authority requires a certain amount of intellectual integrity. So it's not really fair to say that there has been this unchanged movement of the way in which we understand the deep things of Christian faith and life over time. There are broad outlines and there's a core. And that's the subject of an Episcopalian 101. In our present culture, we have uh, a view of reason that sometimes is a a little skewed. And, of course, the highest good and moral value in our culture is the triumph of the autonomous self. You know? 1994-95, I took a class at the Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley on baby boomer spirituality. And it was taught by maybe one of the world authorities on this subject, Wade Clark Roof, And he taught at that time at the University of California in Santa Barbara. In the course of his uh, career in the groves of academe, he became an Episcopalian. And he went to Trinity Church in Santa Barbara, where a friend of mine who was ordained a deacon with me at Grace Cathedral, Mark Asman, was the rector. And so Dr. Roof at the class, in the class, 
talked about the book he wrote, the famous book, A Nation of Seekers. And he's a sociologist, and his interest is in following people in groups and determining uh, what he's learned by virtue of doing that. So he had a woman that he had been following for, for a number of years, and one time when he was having her fill out one of the questionnaires or something, he said, uh, what, what brand of religion do you practice? And she said, her name was Sheila. And she said, Sheilaism. That's what I practice, Sheilaism. Well, there are a lot of those kind of isms around in terms of what people practice. And they believe that they've come to some reasonable conclusions about why they do or why their particular view uh, is to be commended if, to no other person but themselves. Ralph Qualls, one of our parishioners, told me years ago a story you've heard many times. He spent his career in city government. And um, one of the city attorneys in San Jose said to him one time, Ralph, you cannot reason someone out of a position that they did not use reason to get into. That's true for all of us, isn't it? We sometimes think that we have applied reasonable standards, and we really haven't applied reasonable standards. And we need to always ask those questions. G.K. Chesterton in the 1920s said that when people stop believing in God, it doesn't mean they, do, they, they, they don't believe, they'll just believe in anything. And I think a lot of us do that generally, too. We just believe in everything. So when we talk about what's authoritative, as Christian people, this standard for Anglicans is important. Scripture, tradition, and reason. At least it gives us the reference, the frame, in which we understand uh, our common life together and also personally. So let me say something first about First uh, Corinthians. Because here's the situation on the ground. <clears throat> in Corinth, in the church, most of the people that were members of the Corinthian church were Gentiles. Paul, of course, is a Jew. He was a Jew. But most of the people in Corinth uh, were Gentiles, and if they practiced religion, they practiced one of the Greek mystery religions, of which there were many. And a feature of all of those religions, and for that matter, Judaism as well, was animal sacrifices. So when you have a place or a temple where there's a lot of animal sacrifices, you have a lot of meat. So in places like Corinth, right next door to a temple would be a butcher shop or a restaurant where the meat was served purchased or served. Now, some of the people who had become Christian had scruple about this. They felt uneasy about eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And they just didn't know. And for some, it may have constituted a, a temptation to uh, revert. And so Paul is speaking to the community about the necessity to understand uh, the weakness of other people 
and to perhaps moderate one's habits in the presence of people who may find themselves uh, overly sensitive. Now that seems an ancient thing, but you know, the Episcopal Church has labored over the years recently and others to be sensitive to things that uh, people are sensitive to. So that's why when you go to a potluck dinner at St. Luke's Church, you may find somebody who's serving something that's gluten-free, right? You know, some people who think when you do stuff like this are getting into the fever swamps of political correctness, but the fact is it, it, it constitutes uh, the welcome and inclusion. People who can't drink alcohol need to drink something else. And so it's important when you serve alcohol that you have other things that aren't, don't have alcohol in them. My wife's niece refers to them as ENABs, equally attractive non-alcoholic beverages. <laughs> but the motive behind this is uh, being sensitive to the vulnerability of others, you know? And we do this with regard to other things as well in our common life together and in the wider society, you know? Smoking is on the run these days and has been for a long time. Good thing in all probability. And uh, it makes people who smoke tired. But you know what? The train has left the station. And that's important. So Paul is speaking about uh, the sensitivity that we need to have. Martin Luther said... A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. So it's not really a passage about eating meat or not. It's about how we understand our responsibility to one another. So, now we go to Mark's Gospel. And in Mark's Gospel we have Jesus casting out a demon from a man in the synagogue. Here's what you need to know about Mark. Mark is concerned to demonstrate that Jesus is the Lord of the physical world and the spiritual world. And so in Mark's gospel, the demons and the spirits all know who Jesus is and they recognize him by citing his messianic titles. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the living God? Which was a term for the Messiah. And so we understand that in the sense that Jesus now has control by virtue of these uh, exorcisms and so forth. So let me pause for a moment and say a little something about exorcism in 2015, uh, which might be helpful. By, by the way, uh, you know, because I'm such a nut about this, in the Greek, 
Jesus speaks as one with authority, exousia, authority, exousia. And he casts out the demon by exorcizo. So if you read it in the text, it's a play on words. So somebody listening to that would see, it's kind of not like a pun, but it's, it has features of, of that sort of thing. So here is the Book of Occasional Services, 2003, which is the latest iteration of this in the Episcopal Church. It teaches you how it has, you know, service of blessing for the Christmas crib, you know, uh, welcoming people, saying goodbye to people, uh, all kinds of extra Easter stuff and Lenten things and so forth. And on page 174, there's a heading that says... Concerning exorcism. The practice of expelling evil spirits by means of prayer and set formulas derives its authority from the Lord himself who identified these acts as signs of his messiahship. Very early in the life of the church, the development and exercise of such rites were reserved to the bishop at whose discretion they might be delegated to selected presbyters and others deemed competent. Presbyter is another word for priest, ancient word. In accordance with this established tradition, those who find themselves in need of such a ministry should make the fact known to the bishop through their parish priest in order that the bishop may determine whether exorcism is needed, who is to perform the rite, and what prayers or other formularies are to be used. Now, you know there are some Christian traditions who float on an entire sea of exorcism. They're seeing demons and spirits and everybody and everything. And so it's a feature of their religious practice. Of, uh, they are authenticating their presence of the spirit by virtue of doing these kinds of things. Well, the only thing that I can speak about is my own pastoral experience. I have never performed an exorcism, but I'm going to say a couple of things. I was the rector of Christ Church Sausalito for 13 years. And I had a ministry not only to the parishioners of Christ Church, but to the people who lived at Gate 5, which is the houseboat community, not the ultra, ultra, ultra houseboat community up in Sausalito, but the one down uh, toward the end of town, which was um, a little more funky. So I baptized a lot of those kids down there, and there was an old ferry called the Vallejo that had been beached a long time ago, and the person who lived there for many years was an Episcopal priest who is an expert on Buddhism named Alan Watt. And Alan Watt lived there with his mistress named Marion Saltman. And so I would go down there on Sunday afternoons and I'd celebrate the Eucharist on the Vallejo and then I baptized a lot of the kids there and knew a lot of the people and so forth. So here's what I ran into. I ran into people who began, oh, by the way, you, some of this may date me, but Stuart Brand, who wrote the Whole Earth Catalog, lived down there in this community. It's a great thing, then. It had everything in it. So 
uh, I be began to meet people who had gotten mixed up with stuff that they shouldn't have gotten mixed up with. So this business about possession and exorcism and demons and spirits and uh, your emotional, spiritual, and mental states getting pretty skewed uh, is not to be sneezed at. Don't fool with this stuff. Do not fool with this stuff. But without being too dramatic, there are ways in which the Episcopal Church uh, has the means to do this, and one of them is from the Book of Common Prayer. And it's always been a resource. I was preparing this sermon this week, and I use a, a book. It's a multi-volume book that helps preachers write sermons. And this is called Feasting on the Word. And they have four or five subjects that for every Sunday in the lectionary, they do a reflection from that perspective. Exegetical, uh, historical, homiletical, uh, pastoral, and so on. And in the pastoral uh, column this week, there was uh, a biblical scholar, a Presbyterian, who was writing about this. And he said, one day a man came into my office. He was a pastor as well. And said, um, I'd like you to give me a blessing. I... There's some stuff afflicting me, and I just need your blessing. And he said, <laughs> well, you know, I'm a Presbyterian, and we don't go in for that stuff very much. He said, all I want you to do is bless me. So he said okay, to himself, and he blessed him, and the guy thanked him and left. And he said, I was wondered what happened to him. And you don't. There have been other occasions when you bless somebody, or you listen to them and you read some prayers to them out of the Book of Common Prayer and you see whatever it is just fall away. It falls away. So there's something to the fact that the power of prayer and the authority of Jesus Christ over the demons and the, the principalities and powers of the world has healing power and reconciling power. And in one sense, that's what this reading is about. It's about that power to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. It's at the heart of the mission of the church. So Jesus was speaking with authority, and he is the authority in these manners, in these matters. This isn't really about exorcism. It's about uh, the ability to understand that um, good triumphs over evil. We've talk I had a class on evil recently. We talked a little bit about this 
kind of thing, you know. It's real, it exists. So we need to be aware of that kind of thing, but not uh, overly superstitious, which is a common feature of some of the ways in which uh, the snake-handling variety of Christianity understands what this means. That's not how we understand it. So this week, think about what's authoritative in your life. See if you can discover a fuller and deeper sense of your co co communitarian responsibility to others. And finally, know that God's spirit is the spirit that constitutes your true self. And that is all the authority you need. Amen.